Good morning, Storehouse. Good morning. You guys are smart. You did the later service. I was, this morning was really rough. Man, that extra hour taken away. I was like prying my eyelids open. Normally, like, I kind of can get out of bed, but I was, I was like, momentum was needed this morning to get out of bed. I was like rocking myself. I can do this. But you guys are smart. You came here at 11 o'clock. You're here, though. That's awesome. We're in the second week of uh, Mark, and I've really been enjoying this series. For those of you who uh, don't know me, my name's Tasha, and I'm the lead pastor here. Um, I married. I have three kids. I have a three-year-old, a six-year-old, a nine-year-old. My husband, he's a therapist, and I often get the question, what's it like being married to a therapist? I mean, that sounds kind of rough, you know? And um, it's really awesome, actually, most of the time. The only time when it is not awesome is when we're having an argument and he tries to use those, like, counseling terms on me. Like, stop trying to, stop being d- uh, defensive, Tasha, and, you know, you know, all those things. So, um, but yeah, most of the time, really awesome. My, uh, my kids, Eden, asked this question in the car the other day. It was like a would-you-rather game. She was like, would you rather be a pastor like mommy or um, a therapist like daddy? And um, Elliot said, hmm, my six-year-old, he's like, I, I want to be both, actually. I want to be both, but I also want to be a builder and an architect and an artist. So we had this, like, hybrid thing going on. I'm like, you're going to be real busy, but he was okay with that. Um, and then I said, Eden, what about you? What, you know, what do you, what do you think to that question or you know, what's your answer? And she's like, definitely not either of those. <laughs> she's like, I'm not doing pastor or a therapist. I want to be, I want to own a bakery. Um, and then before this, her dream was to be a singer who worked with pandas. So I just love it. I mean, my kids are like dreaming big. It makes me really excited to be their mom and just foster those dreams. And um, yeah, it's really, it's really cool. But you know what? I, when in, co- in college, I, I like bopped around to a lot of different majors. You know, I I did, I think it was like five different declared majors. I was really all over the place. I, I was history, I was political science, I had um, psychology was in there, I had, um, what else? Oh, I wanted to get a certification and to be a doula, I wanted to be a birth coach. I was like really all over the place. I mean, um, and I remember thinking at the time, this is like really hard to, to, to know what these jobs actually entail. Like, what are you actually doing when you are, you know, when you're majoring in certain things? And, and how awesome is it is that whole system of like apprenticeship, right? I mean, like, that's a really cool idea that you can actually apprentice under someone. You can actually learn their trade. You can be in their environment. You can see what it's like on a day-to-day basis and actually get an, a true idea of what it's like to be, so, which I think my kids should probably do at one point. So my, my daughter doesn't, you know, I don't know, like she's got to work with pandas at some point to figure out if she actually would like to be a singer working with pandas or so at some point we have to get this kind of like practical hands-on understanding of what it's like to do the day-to-day now I promise this all ties in because we're asking the question today what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Now, last week we asked the question, who is Jesus? That was the first week of Mark. And we uncovered like the first three verses of Mark were like full of, of incredible theological truth, that he is the fullness of God, that he is Messiah, that he is the King of Kings. And uh, we, we saw very clearly last week that Mark was uh, leaving no room for us to just believe that Jesus was a great moral teacher that he was something greater, something bigger. So that was a big question last week. Now this week we asked the question, we're asking the question, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Now this word disciple is the Hebrew word talmid. 
Talmid, and that word means follower, learner, student, and apprentice. So it's kind of a broader understanding of what it means to be a disciple. It's someone who is a follower, a learner, a student, and an apprentice. Now, we're going to be in Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. So if you have your Bibles, you can open there. Um, And this is the calling of the first disciples. It says this, As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. So in order for us to fully unpack this story, in order for us to fully understand what's happening in this chapter, we need to take a little field trip. Are you guys ready to take a field trip? Okay, we're going to take a field trip. So you're going to be in your mind's eye traveling back to first century Israel. So you're first century Israel and you are part of the Jewish nation. And I want us to fully understand what it looked like for education in that time and place, because I think that will give us a really interesting understanding of what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus. So in in first century Israel, as a Jewish child, you would start school about five years old. And you would go to school, and it was called Bet Sefer. Now, now Bet means house, and Sefer means book or scroll. So you're going to this, this first elementary school of sorts, and it's the, the house of the scroll or house of the book. You know, if we think about words like Bethlehem, Bet always means house. El means God, and then Hem means bread. So if you think about where Jesus was born as the bread of life, it was in Bethlehem. Not by coincidence, it's pretty incredible. Um, so we have the, the house of the book or the scroll. You start there around five years old, and the whole point of the schooling here is to memorize the Torah. You're memorizing the first five books of the Bible, and so you're studying Genesis and Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And the emphasis here is on the word of God. And often what they would do the first day of school is they would take some honey and they would put it on the slate of the child and a little dollop of honey. And they would ask the child to kind of put their finger in and taste the honey. And then they would say, the word of God is like sweet honey to your lips. The word of God, as you are meditating it, as you are memorizing it, it is sweet like honey. I was in a seminary class and they actually had us do that. He, would, he had little like honey packets. He's like, okay, now take some honey and, and just think about it. That, that the word of God, we're going we're gonna to so elevate the word of God that it's sweet like honey on our lips. And so during this time, they're memorizing the, the Torah, the book, the five books of the Bible. And it's almost unfathomable for some of us to think like that. Like, I can't believe these small children were memorizing all of that scripture. But the truth is, we all memorize different things all the time. I know, I know way too many people that know like almost all the, the um, words of Dumb and Dumber, like all the scripts. I know, I know way too many people. Oh, or like in my mind, I have pro- the first um, NSYNC album totally memorized. It's so sad. It's in there. It cannot go out. I cannot get it out for the life of me. Um, I also have like all of Hamilton memorized. That one I'm a little bit less remorseful of because it's also teaching me history, which is really awesome. Um, but, but yeah, we have things that are memorized. We just put our emphasis on different things, right? We all have, you know, different lyrics memorized, different movies memorized, but they would put all of their focus 
and attention on the word of God, to memorize it, to know it back and front. And then they would go into the next level of schooling is Bet Talmud. Bet Talmud means the house of learning or the house, um, yeah, the house of learning. And so this happened about 10 or 11 years old. So from 5 to 10 or 11, you were in Bet Sefer and then you came to Bet Talmud. This would be a smaller number of children, but still, um, you know, still a significant portion. Still at this point, there were boys and girls both in the school. And they would enter into this part of school to memorize even more of Scripture. And they'd memorize all the way to Malachi at the very end. And, And at this point, they're learning about the whole foundation of how to study Scripture. And it was always about questions. They were very big on questions. Our Western understanding of education is very, um, very rote. It's very memorizational, memorization-based. And so I might say something like, what's two plus two? You would say four, but that they would say, who said six? Oh, no, we got... <laughs> but they would say, you know, two plus two equals four. They would say the answer would be, what's 16 divided by four? And so in response with a question, you're illustrating that you know that you're really understanding, grasping these concepts. And so it was a lot about question and answer. And and they would learn more of the scripture and they would learn how to to read Deuteronomy backwards. And they would would start to, you know, um, dig into the different study of certain words. And so it was very intense focus on the rest of the Old Testament scripture. It was during this time that we know Jesus was in the temple. Do you guys remember how old Jesus was in the temple? Twelve, yes. So he was in Bet Talmud and he was learning and it says he was questioning and talking to the, to the other uh, rabbis and they were amazed at his teaching, amazed at his questions. And so he was, he was in this stage of learning. We also know that Mary was probably about 13 or 14 and so um, when she became pregnant with Jesus and she responds to this proclamation from the angel with, with the Magnificat. And the Magnificat was just all these quoted scriptures from the Psalms and the Minor Prophets. And so she's... She's doing that because within her is scripture so rich, so, so memorized, and, and it's the very fabric of her being. And so when she responds to the angel, she's responding in all scripture. So we have Bet Talmud, and then the very elite, the very, very elite, they go into something called Bet Midrash. And Bet Midrash is the house of study or the house of interpretation. And this is really like the 0.00%. It's the Harvard, the Yale of their day. And now we have to keep in mind at the very beginning, the, the goal, the dream of every small Jewish child, of every Jewish parent was for their child, their, their boy, to be a rabbi to be a rabbi. And so they would dream of their child being a rabbi. Please, Lord, make him a rabbi. But it was only those that got to Bet Midrash who could even dream of being a rabbi. And in Bet Midrash, they're they're studying the scriptures even more, but they are trying to find a rabbi who they can follow. So they're looking out and they're seeing the various rabbis and they, they're looking at it in three different arenas. They're saying, this is a rabbi where I can learn their yoke. Now, yoke means teaching or interpretation. And so when G- Jesus says, my yoke is easy, it's, it's talking about his interpretation of scriptures. It's not all these additional laws that I'm putting together. I'm, I'm talking about the very foundation of our faith. My yoke is easy. So they're looking at the rabbi's yoke and each rabbi would have a slightly different yoke 
a slightly different interpretation of the scriptures. And so this rat, they might like, you know, differ on various word choices or how to, how to um, spend the Sabbath or what are the various um, dietary restrictions and laws that differ slightly. And so these rabbis had their own yoke or their own interpretation. So as a potential Talmud, you're looking at the rabbi and they're saying, is this someone's yoke that I would want to take upon myself? And then the next step is they would want to become like their rabbi. And so they'd follow that rabbi everywhere they went. They'd go with them everywhere and they would imitate them down to the smallest detail because they wanted to just uh, soak themselves in who their rabbi was. And then the last step is to to carry that rabbi's yoke, their interpretation, into the world. To become a teacher themselves, to, to become like their rabbi and spread the message into the world. Now, they, they truly took imitation to like another level. They did not let their rabbi go anywhere without them. They wouldn't let them go to the bathroom without them. There's actually a Jewish blessing called the Asher Yatsar that is literally a blessing said after one goes to the bathroom. And it was learned from the Talmudim by their rabbi. And it says this, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has formed man and wisdom and created with him numerous orifices and cavities. It is revealed and known before the throat of your glory that if but one of them were to be blocked or one of them to be opened, it would be impossible to exist for even a short while. Blessed are you, Lord, who heals all flesh and performs wonders. And we all said, amen, because that is true. Blessed is the Lord. He knows all these things that work and we do not understand them. And I'm so grateful. And so these, uh, the rabbi would go into the bathroom, the Talmudin would be close behind, and then they would bless the Lord after, after they had finished. So they were imitating their rabbi. They were after their rabbi. They wanted to be just like their rabbi. Now the way that someone would become a Talmudim, part of the Talmudim, would be to ask a rabbi if they could follow him. So they would say, Rabbi, may I follow you? And the rabbi would respond by questioning he would test them. He would ask them to recite Deuteronomy backwards. He would ask them all the ways, all the places in which the word well shows up in the second half of Genesis. They would, he would ask them, hey, how many uh, times is, is uh, Deuteronomy referenced in Habakkuk? And, and tell me all of those points. And he would ask them uh, the, the verse before the verse that he recites. And you'd have to just know it off the top of your mind. And, and when the rabbi was satisfied, he would say one of two things. The rabbi would say, it is apparent that you love God, but go home to your family trade. That was one option. It's apparent that you love God, but go home to your family trade. Or he would say, yes, you may follow me and become part of my tamudin. And in saying this, in essence, he was saying, I believe you have what it takes to become like me, to become part of my Tamudin to follow me, imitate me, and take my teachings into the world. Now, with this in mind, with all of this in mind, let's look again at that passage in Mark. Now, Jesus is going to the Sea of Galilee. He's going to the uh, top of the Sea of Galilee, the northern, northern part. And if you look at this map here, there's a town called Scythopolis right here at the bottom. Now, and, and Jesus we have in Nazareth, so you can see where he's going. So he decides to go to the north point of the Sea of Galilee. And um, Scythopolis 
was actually like the, Re- the Greco-Roman like hub, cultural hub, metropolitan. Uh, metropolitan city. There was lots of things going on there. But Jesus decided when seeking out his disciples not to go to Scythopolis, but to go to the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. And there he travels to these working class towns to find his disciples. And he gets there and he walks in the Sea of Galilee and he sees Andrew casting a net. He sees Simon and he says to them, come follow me. And then he goes down the beach a little bit and he sees James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in the boat. And he says, come, follow me. Now, all four of these disciples, they were fishermen. So what does that tell you about how they, uh, how they ended their educational career? At some point, all, all Jewish parents longed for their child to become part of a Talmudin. And at some point, they would have approached a rabbi they would have gone to a rabbi and said, may I follow you? And that rabbi would have said to them, it is apparent that you love God, but go home and continue your family trade. And their family trade happened to be fishing. It's amazing to me is that Jesus chose the JV squad, purposefully chose the JV squad. Team B, not the best of the best. He chose those that didn't make it. When we read scripture and it says, you know, they immediately dropped their nets and they followed after Jesus, I think we can get a better understanding of what that might have looked like because of their own story. Because they had been told no. Because now there was a rabbi who wanted them to follow him. And I'm sure there was something incredibly sacred and special about Jesus as he walked this earth. But it also had incredible significance that they were being called by a rabbi and saying, you, you come follow me. You didn't make it, but now I'm telling you, you made it. Follow me. I always wondered often, I also wondered why Zebedee like never had a bigger issue with this. I mean, his, his boys were carrying on the family business and he wasn't like, you know, yelling in the background, like there's curfew, like you better get back here. No, he just let them go. And I imagine him because every parent's dream was for their child to be part of, to become a rabbi for him telling his wife, you know, our boys are gone. A rabbi. He came by and he said he wanted them to be his disciples. It's incredibly powerful. And if we think about the schooling and how old they must have been, they probably were 15 or 16 years old. 15 or 16 years old. If you actually enter the story and you think about the fact that our, our faith as it is now was carried out by a bunch of 15 or 16 year old boys who were on the JV squad. How incredible is that? It is so moving. So Jesus called them and he says, you, you follow me. Now, Peter, we, we know that Peter was probably the oldest of the crew. Peter himself, we know he was married. We saw Jesus heal his mother-in-law. And so, um, and, and there was a conversation about temple tax. And so he's probably around 20, 21. We know that temple tax wasn't paid until 20. And so through all of those clues, we can kind of guess his age at about 20, 21. So he was probably the oldest. And, and in most Tal- Talmudims, there was one person who was kind of the leader, he would imitate, 
He would imitate the rabbi first. He would go first. He was the first one in the bathroom. He was doing the things first and so, and then bringing the others along. And Peter was probably the leader of this Talmudim. And so when you look at like how Jesus came on the water and, and Peter immediately, he's out and he's trying to walk on the water. It's because his rabbi was doing it and because they took imitation so seriously. He said, you're on the water, I'm on the water. And then we think about how Peter eventually denies Christ and he's weeping and he's destroyed. And it's, and you think about that whole story of how Jesus came to him and believed in him and then the significance of denying him, just denying his rabbi who had said, you have what it takes. Jesus said to all of them, I see more in you than you see in yourself. I believe in you and I believe that you have what it takes to be part of my Talmudim. You have what it takes to be like me. I think all of us at some point can identify the feeling of not being enough. Of not being enough, of not being competent enough, not being intelligent enough, not being skilled enough. The idea that, that in some arenas that people will maybe figure out who we truly are. Figure out how messed up we are, figure out how little we have to offer, whatever it is. But what's so incredible about this story is that Jesus... God in all of his fullness knows exactly who we are. He knew exactly who the disciples were. He knew every hair on their head. He knew their biggest regret, most embarrassing moments, most epic failures, all of those things, and still says, yes, come, follow me. And he says the same to us today. He knows all of our most epic failures. He knows all of the things that we wish we could just hide in a closet. And still he says to us, come follow me. Be part of my Talmudim. He tells all of us that we are capable of great things. We are capable of great things. That with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which he gives us as a gift, that we can be part of the redemption story of all of creation. When he says, come, follow me, he says, you are part of a bigger story. I believe that you have uh, all that it takes to be just like me and to bring my story, to bring my truth into this world. Now, the truth is, is that we all fall short, right? We all fall short. And the disciples showed us that they fell short. There were many times where I'm like, really, Jesus, these are the guys you chose. You read through the scriptures. You're like, come on, Peter. You got this, but he's just so foolhardy. He does the craziest things. But all of us, we can relate to those disciples. There's things that that we fall short, but but God says, with that indwelling of the Holy Spirit, what I I have gifted you, in the very presence, in the very core of who you are, that you are capable of great things. You are capable of being my disciples. So we think about that he chose these guys, and then we think about the fact that he says, come follow me. Now, if you remember, as we took the field trip back, we remember that, that it never happened that way. Rabbis didn't go up to, to their followers and say, come follow me. What happened is that the, the, town, the potential Talmud, he would go up to the rabbi and he would say, please, can I follow you? And then he would have to prove himself. He would have to prove himself by reciting De- Deuteronomy backwards or doing all the things, all, answering all the questions. But Jesus says, come follow me. You don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to get all the answers right. I'm inviting you to be part of my, 
my followers. I'm inviting you to learn my ways and to carry my teachings forward. The truth is, is that Jesus chooses you before you choose him. He has chosen you before you have chosen him. He is for you before you are for him. He is knocking at the door of every one of our hearts and he is asking for us to follow him. He has chosen you before you have chosen him. It says in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. I used to thought this was all about like predestination Calvinism, but it's, it's a broader concept here when we understand the, the teachings. You did not choose me, but I choose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will, not la- that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. He doesn't wait until we have it all together. He doesn't wait until we have proved ourselves. He comes near and he calls us to be his followers right now, where you are. Now, later in the chapter, we read about a story of him healing the leper. It says in in verse 40, a man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, Jesus, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus was filled with compassion. He reached out his hand and he touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. I think the order here is incredibly important for us to understand. You know, leprosy at that time was incredibly contagious. It was a mutilating disease. It was grotesque to look at. It was disgusting to be around. It was open sores all over our body. And the the chronology of what happened here is Jesus is filled with compassion. He touches him. He touches him in the state that he was in. He came before him and he touches him first and then he heals him. He touches him in his brokenness. He touches him in his woundedness. He touches him in his state of leprosy, and then he heals him. This is the beauty of our Jesus. This is the beauty of our rabbi. He comes to us. He chooses us. He calls us home before we choose him. So what does it mean for us to be a disciple of Jesus? What does it mean for us to, to actually live out discipleship, to become part of the Talmudim of Jesus? Well, we first start by coming to him. We, we say yes. In some way, we say yes. We, we drop our nets. We, do our, we, we come towards him. We move towards him. And we recognize that even though we're a bunch of misfits, we're a bunch of the JV squad, he wants us and we come towards him. But at some point we recognize, after coming towards him, that there is a cost. That becoming a disciple of Jesus is not free, in essence. There's a cost. There's a cost of discipleship. It says in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. There is a moment, there are many moments in our journey to becoming his disciple that we will recognize there is, there is something to give up. There is something to put down. The first thing these guys put down was the net, right? They put down their net And they said, hey, I'm going to follow Jesus. But what they're putting down in the net is they're giving up their livelihood. They're giving up everything they knew. They leave their dad, Zebedee. You know, they're leaving family and friends and what they knew. They're leaving the known for the unknown. 
But then there's going to be other things along the way that we're going to have to give up, that are going to cost something to us. And maybe for us right now, it's, it's just it's the feeling of being an outcast. It's a feeling of not belonging, right? In certain situations, we, we don't participate in the gossip. We don't participate in that conversation. So that, that's a cost. That's giving up feeling like we belong in all situations. Or, or it's, it's giving up the, this idea that, that we do things on our own strength, that we do things in our own power, that all that we have is ours and ours to enjoy. Or we, what we give up is, is we choose to view that our sexuality is not our own and we hold on to this unpopular view that, you know, sexual intimacy belongs in marriage. All of that, that is denying ourselves, and that is part and parcel of being a disciple of Jesus. He says we don't do things our way all the time. We don't, things, we don't do things the way that we want to do it. We do it the way of Jesus, our rabbi. So there is a cost, and we need to weigh the cost when we become a disciple of Jesus. We weigh the cost. But the other question, the flip question that Dallas Willard asked so beautifully is there is also a cost to non-discipleship. We certainly, we can, we can turn towards God and we can kind of just hover here in like the, the Christian world, like kind of culturally Christian, doing my thing. But when we, when we actually become disciples of him, we are, we are emphasizing, we are moving our whole lives in his direction. We're imitating him in all ways. But there is the cost, as Dallas Willard says, of non-discipleship. There is certainly a cost of non-discipleship. We can hover right here, stay right here, or we can, or, or we can actually enter into discipleship. He says this in, um, in his book. He says, non-discipleship costs abiding peace, a life penetrated throughout by love, faith that sees everything in light of God's overriding governance for good, hopefulness that stands firm in the most discouraging of circumstances, power to do what is right and withstand the forces of evil. In short, it costs exactly that abundance of life Jesus said he came to bring. So there's a point where we can choose to become disciples of Jesus. There will be a cost, but the cost of non-discipleship of not following him with all of our lives is so much greater. Is so much greater. Yes, we will need to deny ourselves and follow after him. Yes, there is a part of grieving what is lost and moving towards the new, but the new is so much greater. In 2020, Barna Group, there's a, a, a study group, a group that does research, uh, they put out a survey, and they said their findings showed that the practicing Christians in the United States has nearly dropped in half in the last two decades. Just 25% of Americans are practicing Christians compared to 45% in 2000, 20-year gap. Now, if you look more carefully at that study, you see how they define a practicing Christian. And if practicing Christian is defined as someone who identifies as a Christian, they agree that strong, their faith strongly influences their lives, and they attend church in the past month. So that's the extent. So they attend church in the past month, and they believe that, the, that their faith influences their lives in a significant way. And I look at the definition, I look at what it meant to be a disciple, and I know Jesus would have just rolled his eyes at that, that definition of what discipleship means, of what it means to follow him. 
because it is so much more than that. And so when we read through the kind of the, the when we read through the context in the, of this survey, we recognize that what this is really showing us is those that are lukewarm, those that are those that are kind of following on the outskirts, just fa- doing it culturally, doing it because it's normal to do in their community. That's falling away. But those that are invested, those that are disciples of Jesus, who follow him with their very lives, it's stronger and more robust than ever before. In the New Testament, the term Christian is mentioned three times, but the term disciple is mentioned 269. Being a disciple of Jesus is first turning towards him, responding to his invitation to come follow me. But then it's also apprenticeship. It's imitation. It's learning under the master, the rabbi, Jesus. It's becoming part of the Talmudim. So when we asked this question in the beginning, we said, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? We respond. The next thing that we do, if we model after this understanding of discipleship in first century Israel, we learn. We learn the yoke of our rabbi. We, we soak in the word of scripture. We, we, we meditate over it. We allow it to, to sit with us. We treat it like honey on our lips. We learn the teachings of Jesus. I've been so incredibly encouraged during this Lent season because I've had numerous conversations with people who have said, I am now reading through a book of the Bible for the very first time. I have never read from beginning to end a book of the Bible. And I don't get everything, Tasha. I'm not, I'm not fully understanding all that's going on. And that's okay. But I'm doing it. I'm soaking in the word of God. And I just want to encourage you guys to keep going, keep soaking in the word of God. Ask questions, get curious. You know, there's amazing commentaries out there. There's lots of really great information out there, even different uh, translations of the scripture itself. But that's that's very step one of becoming a rabbi or becoming a disciple of Rabbi Jesus is we learn. We learn his yoke. The next thing we do is we imitate him. We're not learning the, uh, the, the bathroom blessing, but we'll do it in other ways. We, we look at Jesus and, and what he taught and what, he show, what we see of him in scriptures, and we imitate him. He came close to the weak and the vulnerable. He touched them before they had it all together. He loved self-sacrificially. At cost to himself, he denied himself. He prayed continually. He took Sabbath That was important to Jesus. He got to the heart of the matter. He didn't stick with the fluff, all the rules, all the stuff. He he cared about the heart, what was happening in the heart. He honored God. He he took community seriously. He sought to be part of a group, a, a group that was community to him. That was important. So we imitate our Jesus. And then we go. We go and we take the teaching of our rabbi Jesus into the world. And we do that imperfectly. We do it imperfectly, but we do it first by, by how we behave, how we treat one another. So that people will know that our Jesus because of the way that we love. But then we also say it explicitly. We talk about what we're learning. We talk about the, what we understand from the scriptures or don't understand. And all that's okay. We do it at where we're at. Wherever you are at, you don't have to be at a certain level in order for you to go. I mean, Jesus showed that again and again. If you keep reading through the scriptures, it's incredible because he's like, 
They don't understand all the doctrine. And he's telling them to go into towns and to heal people and to tell them of the gospel. And they haven't even like received the Holy Spirit yet. I mean, there's lots of things going on. Theologically, it blows your mind. Like, what is happening? But, I, but he's setting an example here. He's saying, go. You don't have to have it all together. You don't have to all the, have all the answers. But just tell people what you know. If it's as simple as this, you're having a conversation with your neighbor and you're like, hey, reading through Mark for the first time, kind of crazy, kind of interesting. I learned the story about a le- you know, God, Jesus who came close to a leper. It was kind of interesting. That's fine. That's a wonderful place to start. That's a great place to start. Maybe you just tell someone, hey, I'm, I'm trying out church again for the first time. It wasn't as like, didn't suck as much as I thought it would. That's great. Start there. But we go and we tell people, we share with people, and we disciple. We look for people who are eager to learn, who are ready to say yes. And we bring them along. We bring them along in understanding. We, we bring them to what we have already understood. There is something that you have to teach someone else. So we go. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Well, first we respond yes, to come follow me. Then we learn, we imitate, and we go. There's a great phrase that was also part of this kind of first century world. And the the phrase said this, it says, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. So the idea was that the rabbi would be walking and the streets were dusty, nothing was paved, and he'd be walking and the Talmudim would be so close behind the rabbi that they would get the dust just picked up from the sandals of their rabbi, just thrown all over them. I thought about having this, like, you know, having a fan right here and then maybe putting some dust and, like, just blowing it across, then I thought that would go wrong. Ow, my eyes! But they would, this, it was a beautiful blessing. It was like, may you imitate, may you travel so closely with your rabbi that you are picking up, that you are so close that the dust from his sandals will come over you. I, my prayer is that we wouldn't live in this kind of lukewarm area, right? That we wouldn't just call ourselves Christian just to call ourselves Christian. That we would become disciples of Jesus. That we would consider ourselves part of the Talmudim. That we would go forth and we would take his teachings seriously and that we would, we would soak in the words of scripture, that we would, we would imitate our Jesus and that we would bring that into the world. We're gonna take communion here. Communion is a reminder of what Jesus has done for us. It's a reminder of this self-sacrificial love. And so as we take the cup, we think of his blood that was shed for us on the cross. And as we, as we, as we eat the wafer, we think of his body that was broken for us. It's another chance for us to declare, Jesus, you are my master. You are my rabbi. I am your disciple. I'm here to follow you. It's a declaration for him. So as we, after we pray, I'm going to invite the team to come forth to serve communion. As you come forward, um, you can take it and return to your seat. And as you sense the Holy Spirit prompting, you can just take it as you would, um, as we move into worship at whatever time you want. And just remember as you're taking the bread and the cup that this is Jesus. This is Jesus' sacrifice for you on the cross. So let's pray. God, we thank you, Lord that you are worthy of following. We thank you, Lord, of what it means, um, what it means to be your follower. God, I pray, Father, for each of us that our 
that our hearts would be open, God, to your next step for us. Maybe for some of us, it's just to say yes. It's to say yes to the invitation to come follow me. Yes, Jesus, I will follow you. And for others of us, it's this working out of what it actually means to be a disciple, what it actually means to, to, to learn and to imitate and to go in your name. So God, would you give us boldness and courage, insight, bravery, follow hard after you, Lord, to be a true disciple of you, Jesus. We love you. We thank you for who you are. We pray this in your precious, precious name. Amen.